watching all movies with Rebecca and Jason. Are you gonna love them or hate them? Here comes the binge. Hey everybody, welcome to The Binge, in which a couple of homos review the latest movie theater releases. I am Jason Leroy. And I'm Rebecca Larte, and today we have three movies for you. The Shape of Water, The Disaster Artist, and Thelma. And as always, we're going to rate these movies on a three-tiered scale, with Binge being our highest rating. Consume in moderation means it's okay, but it's kind of meh. And send it back means... Life is too short for that mess. You know what else is short? What's that? The uh, time between when you first start getting chilly and when the holidays are upon you. Mm-hmm. And uh, it feels like we've already started watching some movies, uh, Christmas-themed movies, and we are in the thick of it. We are. It is now December, guys. And uh, we have reviewed, I believe, two Christmas films so far on the show, Bad Mom's Christmas and The Man Who Invented Christmas. Mm-hmm. And so uh, so this week, in lieu of what's up with you, uh, we want to commemorate uh, the inauguration of December by talking a little about holiday films that mean something special to yours truly, mm-hmm. and also Rebecca. <laughs> um, so what movies do you have, what, what movies warm your cold little heart this season? You know, I feel like for me, there's there's just one. There's just one movie that will always be the Christmas movie for me. And that movie is Schindler's List. No, that movie <laughs> is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Oh, really? It is the be-all and end-all for me. It is. Uh, and, and I think you know these are the kinds of things that are almost decided for you by your family when you're growing mm, up. Yeah, that's true. Uh, because you know every family has different movies that they uh, you know perhaps watch as a tradition around the holidays, and you know for a lot of people it's a Christmas story, but definitely you know, not me. No, I never. Oh God, I, I, I think I, I hate a lot more Christmas movies. I can say what Christmas movies I specifically don't like a lot easier than I can say which ones I really like. Okay, what are some what are some ones you don't like? A Christmas Story is at the <laughs> top of the list. I don't get it. It's I so don't, I don't get it. Annoying. And it all, it creeps me out sort of in a way. Mm-hmm. It's not at the all endearing. Lamp. The leg lamp, uh, the frustration, the, the tongue freezing, um, the tongue freezing, the the like eat like a pig thing. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, I, I just hate the yeah. mother's voice, the father's. It, I just yeah, it's an ugly movie. It's, it's an, so ugly. It's a really ugly movie. I've never understood the fascination with that movie. I don't know how that became the movie that is run for like several days straight nonstop on a variety of basic cable channels around Christmas. No idea. I don't know. I don't get it. Um, but I'm sure it's the kind of thing that if you watch as a kid, you just have a nostalgic attachment to it. And, and being it's not like Cleveland, a cognitive, you know, logical thing. Oh, yeah, Cleveland. Yeah, it's like filmed in Cleveland and there's mm-hmm. a house in this area called Tremont where they keep the leg lamp and it's like basically a Christmas story museum thing. Do people visit it? People visit it. I yeah. It's, uh, it's not great. I don't get that. What other Christmas movies do you not like? Um, I don't like, um, I don't like The Man Who Invented Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Um, I don't like particularly, um, It's a Wonderful Life. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. Which is very much a descendant of the story of The Man Who Invented Christmas. So really, (laughs) Charles Dickens is also responsible for It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, the thing is, I don't mind A a Christmas Carol. Mm Mm-hmm. Um. You like seeing white men get chained? One of my... (laughs) Um, one of my favorite Christmas movies is uh, a, Muppet, a Muppet's Christmas Carol. Ooh, okay. Classic. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one that I will put on every year, for sure. Um, what about Scrooged? I only recently saw that, um, so uh, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, uh, what else don't I like? Um, <laughs> oh, I don't like uh, National Lampoon. Really? Yeah. Uh, why? I don't know. I, again, I, it's another one I came to, I think, too late. It was not at all part of my... 
formative years. Mm, okay. Yeah, basically, this is going to be like a regurgitation of what my mom likes. <laughs> and she, she's very strict about if, if she, what she thinks something is not watchable, I never watched it. I see. I see. Uh, well, for me, Christmas Vacation uh, is a film that still to this day when I watch it, I get a great amount of joy from. Uh, I feel like it is the best cast lineup for the uh, for the Griswold family that they ever landed on in terms of the kids, since they rotate every movie. And in Christmas Vacation, the kids are played by Juliette Lewis and Johnny Galecki, mm-hmm. and uh, which is, you know, I don't think that anyone can even name a lot of the kids who have uh, played them in the other iterations. But, That's the uh, one where he's like waiting for his bonus check to make a pool? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, he wants to put in the pool. And for me, as a kid, that was relatable. That is very relatable. Because, like, wow, what I wouldn't have given for an in-ground pool. Like, that look, like, just seeing the blueprint they show in the movie for the pool mm-hmm. and, like, the little three, the little model he has on his desk, I'm like, oh, that looks so nice. <laughs> I want a pool. And so that part of it was great. I was also, Juliette Lewis was, like, my first ever favorite actress <laughs> throughout the 90s. And so it was, like, I felt like it was, like, this special, like, thing I had with the movie that my family couldn't understand where I'm like, no one else gets this. She's actually really cool. She's not just Audrey <laughs> with her like hilarious uh, die job in that movie. Uh, the grandparents, uh, played by the likes of Doris Roberts mm-hmm. uh, and, and Diane Ladd, Laura Dern's mm-hmm. mom. Come on. Yeah. Um, I think it's a fine moment for Uncle Eddie, uh, Dennis Quaid, or oh. Randy Quaid's character, Randy Quaid. Uh, we have, uh, you know, Brian Doyle Murray as the evil boss, makes a great villain. Uh, you know, the whole thing, uh, it, you know, there are a number of, of, of set pieces that I think are just immortal cinema, uh, such as the um, the serial varnish that leads to uh, Clark plummeting downhill mm. uh, through the snow and landing in, like, I believe, a Walmart dumpster. <laughs> that was the first time I ever saw Walmart. We didn't have, we didn't get oh, them yeah. where I lived until sometime later. So I was like, what's that nice store? That seems real fancy. <laughs> And there's there's definitely um, you know it's very much of its time in terms of like some really over the top objectification of a uh, of a um, sales girl uh, who is oh, who, right. who works in a lingerie department right. at a department store, and uh, about whom Clark has a very uh, fairly uh, yeah graphic fantasy, and uh, and 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 it's it's yeah it's of its time. Oh, let's not fucking forget. Julia Louis Dreyfus as the yuppie neighbor. Oh right, who is she with? Uh, the uh, the actor who plays her uh, husband. I I, I want to say it's Nick Cassavetes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. But but yeah, so Julia Louis Dreyfus. I forgot about and, that. And like the way that they skewer yuppie trends of the late eighties mm-hmm. via like their jogging outfits, uh, their uh, you know their their taste in decorating. Mm-hmm. That was also I think one of the first times I ever saw like CDs because they have this very like state of the art kind of like CD setup. That is then destroyed uh, by a rocketing ice missile that shoots out of the Griswold's gutters. So I just feel like moment after moment after moment, it is it is very very funny, and it also has a theme song sung by Mavis Staples. Oh really? Yes. Yeah, I know that. Yes, which I for most of my life I thought was a man, uh, <laughs> and then a few years later when I found who she was, I realized oh that's her singing Christmas Vacation. So <laughs> that was uh, a thing I learned later in life. So do you watch that every year? We watch it every single year and uh and i still have like you know to the point where we've been doing it for so long that i like have just the sense memory excitement that starts to build as we're watching Mm. it because i'm thinking like it's christmas eve and christmas eve growing up we uh my mom would always make us have these these fairly 
revol- revolting traditional Polish dinners. Oh, uh, what yeah. is that? Traditional Polish Eve, uh, Polish Christmas Polish Eve, Eve dinner. Polish Eve. It's um, done on the 20th of December. Before Pol- <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while since a good Polish joke came around. <laughs> And you just sit around for four days wondering where everyone is <laughs> so and hungry. where the presents are. You're so hungry. So hungry. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, then you are given a screen door for a submarine and then you just go, go on your way. Uh, no, Polish Christmas Eve dinner consisted of um, this really um, disgusting soup called borscht. Oh, that sounds Russian. Um, sauerkraut. Oh, that sounds good. That's a, I, uh, go ahead, go ahead. Pierogies. Uh, rye bread. That's all delicious. And that was about it. That, so that sounds amazing. That to me was always. But there was no no meat. Was there like no, a, there was no there was pork or no there was no meat. Eventually, oh right, a, because a, of the the it's Catholic. Right? Eventually, meat was added. Um, basically, because my brother and I would just like sulk every single year, and uh, and so my mother eventually added like pork chops to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and much to the consternation of her Polish uh, her Polish aunt Helen. Mm. Uh, but uh, but she was like, you know, I gotta give the kids something because I would literally go to bed like hungry every Christmas Eve, just <laughs> like I'd Tiny like, Tim. Exactly. I would like, I would only have the pierogies. I would be like picking off little flecks of onion off of them. I'm like, these are disgusting. Do you not like pierogies even now? No, I like. I mean, I I like them now, but at the time, it was literally the only thing I could eat on the yeah. plate because I thought sauerkraut was disgusting. This borscht was basically like rye bread soup. Uh, mm. It was you're like go. <laughs> no, it was not great. And so, but then we would watch Christmas Vacation, and I'd be just like, okay, we're getting closer, we're getting closer. And in the movie, you know, they are clicking through like there's like the calendar on the wall that they're uh, like the advent calendar, mm-hmm. and they're opening the door for each day. And I'm like, it's getting closer, it's getting closer. Uh, so yeah, I still feel that, um, even though I buy my own presents now <laughs> throughout the year. Um, I wait for nothing now, but, uh, but yeah, so that is a movie that I will always have a very strong attachment to. Uh, and I think that it is, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's my Christmas everything. Do you have any that you, so you liked, uh, which one did you say? You uh, I'm up at Christmas Carol. At Christmas I will Carol. definitely watch that every year. Um, but I wouldn't say I go bananas. Mm. I mean, there are parts of it that I really enjoy. Um, I'm, I think I'm more like the Christmas, there was like a Muppet TV special where they all kind of get snowed in at this house and like Miss Piggy's coming, um, that I liked a little bit more. <laughs> Actually, I think I liked the television stuff, like Garfield's really? Christmas was really mm-hmm. good. My so-called life Christmas. Uh, no, not that one. The Homeless Angel. I don't remember that one. Juliana Hatfield. Um, Home Alone. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. It's not one that I will necessarily go back and watch, but it, it, it it really is right it right in line with that feeling that it feels like Christmas right like the, their mm-hmm. big house the, yeah. the clothes uh, when he goes to church um, it's just it just feels perfectly like midwestern midwestern Christmas hundred percent um, I was actually surprised because uh, I feel you know it was like kind of older when it came out um, and eventually saw how sweet Elf was oh yeah yeah I was just thinking if you were gonna say Elf yeah. Um, I mean, it's definitely not like something I try to watch, but it, I, I was very surprised at how sweet. I feel like it's the... Was. Oh, it, speaking of surprised at how sweet, go ahead. Uh, I feel like Elf is the most recent release in like the Christmas movie canon because Elf mm-hmm. is in the canon. Yeah. Like, oh, no, absolutely. No question. I don't think a single movie's come out since Elf that's actually in the canon the way Elf is. You know what's one I will watch every time it comes on? What's that? Um, the Jim Carrey Grinch. No I shit. love that movie. <laughs> really? I don't with, know. With Dakota Fanning as little, 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 little Sue Who. Yeah. Little Who? <laughs> little Sue Who? Is that her name? Lucy. Little, little Sue Who? Is that what it is? Is it? Little Mary Sue Who? Am I adding <laughs> names? <laughs> you have the last name right for sure. 
Um, I don't know. I love it. I think Jim Carrey is so funny in that. Mary Lou Who? Mary Lou Who. Oh. There it is. <laughs> Little <got> Sue Who. <laughs> <laughs> Some sort of lost girl group singer. <laughs> um, very litigious. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, uh, and then another one from uh, from childhood that like it's one of those movies where it only has like one Christmas scene, but for some reason it's like a Christmas movie is uh, Auntie Mame. I love that one. Uh, and so are sweet. we talking about the Rosalind Russell the version? Russell, yeah. Okay, not uh, the not the Lucille Ball version. She's going no not, no no. I know that my that my draw a line with you because oh no, I mean most, be Arthur, but yes, I mean uh, Rosalind Russell. Come on. Yeah, I mean most people hate the Be Arthur version, even though Be Arthur herself in that version is is a delight. Sure, but in mean, the bosom buddies, you can only do so much there um come on but yeah no when she's like you know has gets that job and is like ringing all those sales tickets up and then there's mm. that sweet moment where they don't have any gifts and they like make each other things and they pay the butcher it's very sweet yes um so yeah i guess those are my those are my top top picks those Fair. are the ones that either um i don't hate or uh, i make time for guys what are we leaving out what are we missing uh what are we wrong about let us know how tweet us facebook us what's your twitter you guys already know what it is. It's oh, excess, right. excess baggage. Okay. Um, Rebecca's at Fight Balance. Let us know. You know who I want to make a, a Christmas movie? Um, Guillermo del Toro. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Well, is The Devil's I, Backbone a Christmas I was going to say Wes, Wes Anderson. What? No. Um, although I do feel like the Fantastic Mr. Fox has a very Thanksgiving palette. Mm-hmm. So I could, you could fi- you could make that one work, I think. And speaking of Thanksgiving, if anyone out there is still feeling Thanksgiving vibe, uh, my all-time favorite Thanksgiving movie is Home for the Holidays. Oh, I'm going to actually watch that this year. Are you? Yeah, I'm going to do it. Oh. Um, do let me know how you feel about it. I will. That. I will let you know. Unless I don't like it, in which case, Happy Thanksgiving, I won't tell you. Okay. Let's get started with the movie. Speaking of Guillermo del Toro, uh, our first movie is The Shape of Water, which is our pick of the week. Pick of the week. Pick of the week. Pick, pick, pick is the pick, pick of the week. Eliza is a mute, isolated woman who works as a cleaning lady in a hidden, high-security government laboratory in 1962 Baltimore. Her life changes forever when she discovers the lab's classified secret, a mysterious, scaled creature from South America that lives in a water tank. As Eliza develops a unique bond with her new friend, she soon learns that its fate and very survival lies in the hands of a hostile government agent and a marine biologist. If I told you about her, the princess without voice, what would I say? Clean that lab, you get out. This may very well be the most sensitive asset ever to be housed in this facility. You may think that thing looks human, stands on two legs, right? But we're created in the Lord's image. You don't think that's what the Lord looks like, do you? This creature is intelligent, capable of language, of understanding emotions. So this is the much-anticipated newest movie from Mexican director Guillermo del Toro. 
Um, which are which of your his movies are your favorites or which is your favorite? Oh, or? Pan's Labyrinth, Far and Away. Yeah, yeah, not even close. I like The Devil's Backbone more. Do you? Yeah. Hmm. Um, I was lucky enough to see they had a an exhibit uh, at LACMA, I think a year or two ago. And oh, yeah. It was called At Home with Monsters. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. It was like all too. of his personal collections of all of um, antiques and artifacts and original drawings and all sorts of crazy things that he has in his home that he like made. A, they made like a, like a fake home at one point. Mm-hmm. And he has this thing that like you would use in a movie where it, it's like it makes it look like the window is raining. And you like he has like a chair there. It's like in his writing room. So it always looks like it's like stormy outside. Um, for being such a such a horror movie uh, specialist, everything he does is so endearing. There's such a mm. warmth to it. Yes, and this, The Shape of Water, definitely leans a lot more into the warmth piece of it. Mm. Oh, great. Uh, <laughs> it is, this movie is, it's really a romance. This movie is a romance. It's not, it's not scary. Mm. Uh, there is There's some... no eels in it? It looked a little <laughs> eely. Um, I mean, you know, like, I, I think they're eel, eely is a state of mind. Um, <laughs> but I think that, uh, no, this movie is, it has some... Uh, some fairly jarring violence. Uh, so that piece of it feels very much del Toro. But overall, this is this is this is like a romantic fantasy uh, that is very much steeped in old Hollywood uh, vibes. And really in a lot of ways, and you know, don't take this in the the pejorative sense of what I'm about to say, but it's this year's La La Land. It's this mm. year's love letter to sort of like old Hollywood magic. Interesting. In what brings it? What makes it old? Because it's not about Hollywood. It takes place in Baltimore. Is it just because mm-hmm. it's like? Is it in the forties or the fifties? It takes place during the early sixties, um, and it's a Cold War era. <laughs> You're like it's nineteen sixties in Pensacola. <laughs> I'm like one more. Um, <laughs> it takes place during the Cold War. Uh, it's very much a Cold War story. Uh, the 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 creature uh, in uh, in the story is a source of conflict between the U.S. and the Soviets. Mm. Uh, so it's a movie of that time and also of our time because it's very much about the U.S.-Russia conflict. So the monster is putting fake ads on Facebook mm-hmm. to uh, yes, the election. And, and the U.S. is like, give a, you know, like explain yourself. And the Soviets are like, he did nothing wrong. Send him back. And like, we made a new policy. Now mm-hmm. you can't have sea creature ads <laughs> for Russia. Fake sea creature news. Uh, so, uh, it's actually Julian Assange is the creature. That's, that's the reveal <laughs> at the end. But, um, yeah, so it takes place in the early sixties and, uh, but it, uh, so the main characters, uh, named Eliza, who's played by Sally Hawkins, she is mute and she, uh, lives directly over a gorgeous old movie house, uh, which is played by a very real movie theater in Toronto where most of the movie was shot. Which is where he lives, right? Uh, Toronto? I think he has like a house in... LA not, and one in, in Toronto as well. I'm not sure. He might, but he, uh, but that's actually where we saw when I, my, this is another one that I saw twice at Toronto, ding, ding. And we watched it when Scott came for the weekend and uh, we saw it together. We watched it in the very theater that's used in the movie. Oh, wow. So that was a treat. So, uh, so uh, Eliza lives directly over an old, a gorgeous, enormous old movie house where, uh, you know, old Hollywood movies are being played all the time. And her neighbor and best friend uh, is a character played by Richard Jenkins. He plays um, a closeted gay man 
uh, middle age who works as a, an illustrator uh, who wants to get a job in an advertising agency, but he's being discriminated against because of his sexuality. Mm. And um, and as an old queen, um, all he does all day is watch old movies. And so Eliza will come over and sit down next to him and they'll just watch old movies and he'll queen out over all the old great uh, screen actresses. So, um, you know, and there's just lots of little nods to old musicals. Very early in the film, we see Eliza sort of tap dance her way down her hallway mm. on the way to work. And this is all set against a um, lush del Toro palette, like a super saturated, um, very warm um, look to the movie as well. Um, well, it actually has a really sort of like aquamarine look to it. It's mm. the, the color palette is very much sort of like in keeping with the, the, the subject of the film. Mm-hmm. That's, that's uh, such a big part of his movies. It's like mm-hmm. uh, the way he uses light and color. Yes, um, and darkness. So there are uh, so there are homages throughout the film to old Hollywood, but then at its at its core, uh, it's also very much a love letter, sort of like you know creature features of the fifties mm-hmm. and sixties. Yeah, the the creature does have a little bit of the uh, uh, Black Lagoon look to him. Absolutely. Um, so so in that way, uh, you know, it, it's 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 as always, Del Toro, you know, is sort of you know he's a master storyteller and a master uh, sort of student of cinema. Mm-hmm. And he has all his influences all lined up, and he has, uh, you know, seamlessly woven them into this story. And uh, and they're all there; they're all present; they're all easy to read. But he always has a thing where he makes it still his own story. Mm. Um, or I don't want to say always, because frankly, he's been not great for a while. Crimson Peak was one of the first movies we reviewed really? in the show, and that was a, a, a shit show. Uh, before that, he did Pacific Rim, which mm-hmm. was like, huh? Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is easily easily his best movie since Pan's Labyrinth. We're going back to those that, those stories. Yeah, this is very much a return because uh, I think that he, um, you know, I think he was aware. I think he was aware uh, that, um, I mean, Pacific Rim, he wasn't trying to make that for the critics, but sure. Crimson Peak, I think he was aware that he took some missteps on that. Mm-hmm. And he's definitely uh, uh, showing in this movie that he knows what he did and he's here to make it better. So we have uh, some supporting actors of note here as well. We have Oct- Octavia Spencer. Yes. Um, and we have maybe the villain, the government agent, played by Michael Shannon. Mm-hmm. Um, how are those performances? Oh, they're great. Uh, it's you know it would it's very much the kind of character that we continue to expect Octavia Spencer to be cast as. But Del Toro is able to get sort of a different shading out of her performance than we've seen from her in a lot of roles that she gets put in. So it doesn't look like she just walked out of one government building in <laughs> Hidden <laughs> Figures and walked into the wrong other government. Because at the same time... Right, she wears her hair up and, uh, and, and otherwise, yeah. Uh, She's like, yeah. I was looking for the bathroom and I ended up <laughs> in this like, government guess lab. Guess I'm in this movie now. Uh, um, shot them back to back. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, what's it like when the, the lead character is mute? Well, so uh, Sally Hawkins is uh, is is outstanding in this film. It's a definitely it's a performance that that in some ways recalls Holly Hunter and the Piano. Mm. Uh, that's sort of the last great lead female performance I can think of where uh, where the actress is mute for the entire film. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and Sally Hawkins is for sure an awards contender for this. There's, Interesting. A, there's a good chance that she uh, will for sure get nominated. And some think of her as Frances McDormand's sort of primary competition. And best actress, wow. uh, and uh, and and there's for supporting actor. It, there's a number of ways that this could go. So you know you have Michael Shannon who should never be counted out, uh, and he, it's definitely a sort of a familiar Michael Shannon villain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he is just so good at what he does, and he is yeah, he's Michael Shannon. He's a master. 
Michael Stolberg is having a great fucking year. Uh, he was also on Call Me By Your Name, which we're going to review mm. um, in a later episode. And that's that's what he's more than likely going to get a nomination for. But he's also outstanding here as a sympathetic scientist uh, who uh, ultimately works to aid uh, Eliza in helping this creature who she bonds with, which I think we kind of have skipped over. Um, but he's outstanding. Richard Jenkins, this is probably one of my favorite performances he's ever given. It's a really, really touching, heartbreaking, poignant, sympathetic performance from him uh, as this just sort of like lonely, uh, you know, frustrated uh, cast out. That's that's part of what makes this such an enchanting story is that it's about outsiders. It's about mm. this, this fundamental outsider friendship and then also the outsider connection that Eliza forms with the creature. So, you know, as, yeah, talk more about that. As we mentioned in the summary uh, you know, this 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 swamp thing is brought in. <laughs> I feel like when you say it, it sounds like an insult. <laughs> yeah, it's a swamp thing. Uh, and uh, so, you know, this this creature is brought in and uh, and the U.S. are the U.S. government's trying to, um, you know, make sense of it and figure out what they can do with it. And uh, and she, Eliza, just starts to feel a bond with it kind of right away. And here's where the movie gets a little surprising because I think it's it's not unusual uh, to have stories about like l- you know love stories between women and monsters in these kinds of movies, but in this one they go a little bit further Whoa. than most. Really? Yeah. Um, this movie is basically Amelie fuck Swamp Thing. I was gonna say yeah, I definitely had Amelie vibes here. Yeah, Amelie fuck Swamp Thing. Uh, and, and they kind of, the movie, this is, this is, I think people are going to be kind of low-key skeeved out by the movie in this regard, because not only does it push things into a sexual direction between, uh, Eliza and Swamp Thing, but... <laughs> I'm, I'm delighted and confused and upset about the Swamp Thing reference. <laughs> but a lot... Cut to us in 10 years, and I'm like, you know you can't say Swamp Thing anymore. <laughs> that is a slur. They're swamp people. Uh, this problematic language. He's from Florida. It's okay. Um, <laughs> but uh, but no, Eliza is shown like vigorously masturbating multiple times, like within the first ten minutes of the movie. Hmm. So this is a movie that gives you a whole lot of full frontal naked Sally Hawkins. Hmm. Okay. So yeah, it's. <laughs> I'm it, really it, sure what the right sound response yeah, to that was. Yeah, like, oh. <laughs> 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 um, so uh, yeah, so that is that's a surprise. That's a surprise. Not anymore. Um, I. <laughs> um, yeah, I was I was like looking at some you know one of the only negative reviews of it today, and it was like, oh, you just know exactly what's going to happen at every point. I'm like, ah, oh, big to differ, <laughs> sir. Big to differ. Didn't think it was going to go there. Uh, so uh, but yeah, so basically, it's this love story between Eliza and this creature uh and then she you know her her you know adversary is michael shannon who's trying to rush to just like vivisect the creature so they can you know take their notes from it and he can go back to his main base he also um is a a rampant misogynist there are some very disturbing scenes of his home life his home life is like early 60s suburban perfection Mm -hmm. um and his wife is like this like caricature of like a domestic goddess of the 50s and then there's a scene of him basically like hate fucking her mm. and it is graphic and upsetting uh and so it's it's they, there's some that that's where you get your sort of your dose of del toro perversion mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh in the story um in in this you're saying um do you, would you put this above pan's labyrinth or right below because you're, you're giving this a binge it uh yeah you i am a pick of the week yes um you know i feel like 
Um, I would want to go back and watch Pan's Labyrinth again uh, before I would make such a ruling. Mm-hmm. I, I think that they are both, I think they're very different. I think they can stand side by side. I think mm-hmm. it's probably like as good as Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, it's just a really sweet, enchanting kind of, yeah, romantic fantasy. Hmm. Uh, and it plays really savvily with a lot of different sort of classic film genres. Uh, and, uh, it's, yeah, it hits you right in the feels. Uh, so it's, it's, it's performances are all outstanding and it's just overall a treat. And I'm, I'm really curious to see how it plays out during award season, given that it is such a genre film. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, and historically genre films don't tend to do as well in award season, but right. you know, so this, this, this might be one to challenge that sort of conventional awards logic. The Shape of Water is rated R for sexual content, graphic nudity, violence, and language. And that brings us to our second movie of the week, which is The Disaster Artist. Tommy Wiseau and Greg Sestero become friends after meeting each other in an acting class in San Francisco. Hoping to achieve Hollywood stardom, Sestero moves to Los Angeles and signs on to appear in his buddy's project. Financed with his own money, Wiseau writes, directs, and stars in The Room, a critically maligned movie that becomes a cult classic. Ready? And action! What a line. What a line. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Okay. Action. What is line? Take 13. Action. I did not hit her. I. Okay, okay. Line. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Take 67. Action. Jason, you've seen The Room, right? Yes, Rebecca, you've seen The Room, right? I have. Uh, I've seen it at the Red Vic here in San Francisco. R.I.P. Full uh, midnight glory with people, um, you know, doing it Rocky Horror style where you're saying the lines back and you're throwing spoons. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was an amazing time. The first time, the first time you see it, it's just so amazing. I mean, maybe the second time also when you can finally start to pick up things and you know what to do. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a movie that just breaks your brain when it, you watch it. It much like The Assignment. Yes. It was the original Assignment. Yeah. Um, and it it's funny when a movie is accessible enough that anyone can mystery science theater it. Mm-hmm. Movies. Yeah. And I think that, you know, with The Assignment, I will say that The Assignment at least has a closer, like a more identifiable genre DNA to its like structure and story, since it's meant to be this sort of like pulpy, hard boiled, uh, you know, hitman revenge movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, with The Room, there's no DNA that you can find when you read it. You know, like no. it's mm-hmm. very, you know, in a very, 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 very loose way, you know, it's like a romantic drama. <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. Um, because you know it's about uh, Johnny and 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 Lisa mm-hmm. and how they are torn apart. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I feel like she did most of the tearing yes. apart. You would say yes. So it's really yeah, it's about a man who is spurned by his awful girlfriend. Uh, but it, 
there's no that's part of why the room is so unique because it's not like there's no story wise it's yeah you can't make sense heads or tails of it no um so the room uh cult classic um was shown in a lot of theaters like in this way um had uh cult following with people who would again like say the lines and know exactly what to do first championed in hollywood uh when it first started to take hold with sort of like the apato crowd Mm -hmm. around um the late aughts uh it was you know sort of and there are some of these people show up in the beginning of the film Mm -hmm. the disaster artist uh as just talking heads to basically attest to the amazingness of the room including kristen bell who was one of the first truly outspoken uh people about this it was there was an entertainment weekly article that was like the first real big opening like salvo of the room as like cultural phenomenon and it was basically Kristen Bell the entire time just really? talking about how amazing it is and how like her and Dax either. Shepard host screens out of their house really? and all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those gems that like once you find out you want to show people. Um, you have to to be like, do you see this too? Right. Is this happening? Are they talking that way? Where do those characters come from? Why are they doing it that way? Is, what that, is, green, happening? is that a green screen sky? <laughs> when uh, you could easily have shot this somewhere? Yeah. Um so the room is a real movie. We've both seen it, and I one of the screenings I saw Tommy Wiseau actually came to it and did a Q and A. Yes, which was just as nonsensical as you would imagine. Tommy Wiseau being the uh, writer, director, producer, star of the room, mm-hmm. a very mysterious, enigmatic figure. Tommy is. Uh, there are three primary questions that no one can answer about Tommy, <laughs> and that is uh, how old is he, what country does he come from, and where did he get his money. Uh, because he is a, uh, he looks old. <laughs> he looks like, like he's sort of like, he's looked probably like in his like late 40s, early 50s in the time that he was a child. <laughs> um, his accent is vaguely European and he had enough mm-hmm. money to self-finance this $6 million production of The Room. Right. Which does not look like it cost more than like 20 bucks. Um. So... Uh, so that's layer one. And then layer two on top of that, after the room sort of takes off, um, his best friend during the making of the room, Greg Sestero, who's also the co-star of the movie, uh, writes this book called The Disaster Artist. And it's kind of an autobiography or... It's like a diary. Yeah, of his time. Mm-hmm, making this fam- now famous cult film. Meeting Tommy, making the film, mm-hmm. going to Hollywood together, trying to become actors. Yes. And uh, and then now James Franco has taken that, uh, that, that autobiography, that memoir, and he has turned it into a film. And I feel like when it was first announced, it was like, oh, no, James Franco is going to ruin the room. Right. Because you, you, where can there, you go from the room? There, Yeah. If you try to apply logic to it, you would think that you would break it. Yeah. Not only is there Franco fatigue, mm. but uh, but I think that there's also just a sense that like, okay, well, this is such a unique, this, is, this movie is a unicorn. It's a bad movie unicorn. What can you do to try when you try to apply it through some like external lens of like a, a historical perspective or a critical perspective or like what would it even be? And amazingly, what has come from that is this movie, which is fucking amazing. So good. It's not The Room is the thing. And it doesn't try to be The Room. Although it exactly tries to be The Room in certain parts. And it nails it. They reenact scenes from The Room. And then at the the very end, they do a side-by-side of their reenactment of the scene. Don't leave. Do not go rushing out the door when it's over. It's really amazing how how close they come to nailing the timing on all these lines. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, in doing that, it doesn't take away from the movie itself. Primarily what you have here is a buddy film. Yeah, you have a, a sort of an unlikely friendship story uh, between this young, handsome, aspiring actor and this and this deranged <laughs> Eastern Dracula. 
<laughs> which he's called in the movie. So yeah, they, they meet each other at acting class in San Francisco. Um, Greg is 19. This is all taken from the book. Um, and they just, you know, Greg is pretty shy, but Tommy has uh, all the confidence in the world, but absolutely no talent. Mm-hmm. And so they become friends and try to like help each other in this way and uh, believe in each other. And they, they drive down to L.A. where Tommy miraculously also has a house determined to be buddies and take on the city and make it happen. And like in a very sweet, like a uh, way yeah, that I very naive, very reminds you of being like young and being like, Look, we're going to do right. this together, friend. Like that part, you didn't even seem cheesy yeah. or unrealistic no. at all. And really, I mean, the, the whole thing is ultimately still kind of inspiring because like they make their movie they do they go and they make their movie and that movie has is now one of the most like notorious movies of all time <laughs> and it, it eventually did turn a profit so they went and they and they made their thing and tommy realized his vision and that's why this movie is a lot the closest thing to compare it to would be ed wood mm, um mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. a celebration as a great movie about a terrible movie mm-hmm. as a great film about a terrible filmmaker uh, that's where the disaster artist um, finds its most traction. It does take its time getting to the actual behind the scenes parts of making the room, right? Um, and then you know, I was hoping, I was hoping more than anything that the entire movie would just be the behind the scenes of oh, making really? the room. That's what I wanted. I kind of, I, I like the way it was because I felt like it really set up the um, the sweetness of their friendship, absolutely, I, I, and I, the I, mystery of who Tommy is and and what he went through yeah. trying to make it in Hollywood. And I'm happy with the final product mm. as well. I think I just went into it thinking that it was mm-hmm. going to be like I would get to watch every single scene be recreated, <laughs> which you could because Tommy had hired a personal uh, documentarian to spy on everybody while they were making the room. Yes, very true. Um. Things that are amazing about this movie. Um, number one, in what seems like an impossible feat, James Franco nails his impression of Tommy Wiseau. When you say vaguely European accent, an accent couldn't be more vague. How he speaks is so unique. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's more than just like, an accent, I think. Of it, it's the, so the laugh. strange. He gets the laugh so right. Um, it's almost like if you had a robot, it's almost like an uncanny valley mm-hmm. that also ha- is from another country, maybe, or a couple of different other countries. Um, and James Franco nails it. He also looks incredibly like him. It is, it is one of the best, if not the best performance James Franco has ever given. Yeah, Mike, yeah, I could see that. And it that is... And I really liked his, him and Milk. Y- yeah, I mean, yeah, and Spring Breakers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is up there in the canon of the best Franco performances. It's easily the best movie he's directed. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, and it is, I mean, he is, he's in some awards considerations for this movie. Really? For, yeah, yeah, I could see it. I would, I would... He brings a lot of heart to the character. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's not judging Tommy. Uh, and, you know, he does play him so well. And, you know, you feel his, his yearning to, like... It's really, there's a, there's a poignancy, it's sort of like a dramatic irony that he is not a creative person. Mm-hmm, Tommy is not a creative mm-hmm. person, but he wants to be so badly. It's almost like a Florence Foster Jenkins kind of it thing. It really is. <laughs> it's like a Flo Foss gen of like weird Eastern European filmmakers. <laughs> um, except And just like he has all the money, just like she did, you know, mm-hmm. so that has the financial resources so you can make your artistic dream a reality, even if you have like no talent, mm-hmm. which is the case with Tommy, which, which is one of the things that makes the whole room phenomenon. And then this movie as well. A little strange because you would think like, don't you take it personally, Tommy? Like, is it like you, to your point? He shows up at all these midnight screenings of the room all around the world. And, at this point, yeah. And and you know to be laughed at. And now here, this movie is that sh- that chronicles what had to have been a very heartbreaking moment for him when he realized that his like that his great achievement was a laughing stock. And now in, in he will now some days be like, oh, you know, I wanted it to be comedy. I wanted funny. And uh, and it's like no, you didn't. Yeah, I think <laughs> that not. like when the in the 
portrayal you see of Tommy here, um, you have someone who is already already has way more confidence than a normal person would have. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what makes him like go ahead and make this movie and distribute it anyway. There's definitely that point where he realizes that what he thought was going to be a serious movie is this like comedy um, the premiere. that everyone is, you know, completely laughing at and something that he thought was his like a story of a like, heartbreaking story of betrayal and romance. Um, so I think there's a moment there, you know, you see that him uh, being upset by it, but I think that his overwhelming, mm-hmm. unbelievable amount of confidence has, has yeah. shut down his ability to maybe, see this as a continued failure. If yeah. he sees it as a celeb- as a cause celeb, then he's just going to run with it. And there could be a lesson here in the sense that like when you are an artist and you make your art and you give it away, like you're not like, the, it's not yours anymore to decide how people, you don't get to decide how people are going to receive it and mm-hmm. what they're going to think about it. So he, if anything, he could be an inspiring leader in just leaning into how your <laughs> art is received and just being like, hey, if everyone thinks it's a comedy, then just like go with that and be like, okay, right. you all think it's hilarious. Great. The important thing is that you all keep watching it mm-hmm. uh, and just, yeah, just embrace the audience response, whatever it might be. Right. And then I, I think that like, I mean, he's he's met now with like a lot of love like and people oh yeah he's adore a, him even though they're adored. laughing at his movie yeah and that and that moment of intention uh, you yeah. know that was a mistake but he's you know that, yeah the laughing at versus laughing with with tommy wiseau is a really murky blurry mm-hmm. border and even like when i saw the tiff premiere of this he was there I, I pulled up literally as tommy and greg were pulling up together in a car because they are best friends to this day who talk all the time that's crazy and so just sitting there watching this this watching this you know, this room this enormous packed house full of people just laughing at Tommy in the movie mm-hmm. and then knowing the real Tommy is sitting I can like see him sitting there a few rows in front of me like watching this happen I'm just like dude what's going on in your head right now right how does this feel for you emotionally um, but I mean like I think he's just so lo- he's so far past that what he cares about is that everyone cares yeah and I wonder like what, he, what his friendship with Greg um, how that sort of maybe bridges this uh, as well so the movie has some parts where and Greg is played by Dave Franco right the first which, time that James and Dave have acted together at length and and that I feel like that sh- that surfaces a lot in, in terms of showing their bond as friends where you see you know two people who are very close um, as brothers but this movie paints Tommy both in a sympathetic light and as, as sort of a monster, the monster who mm-hmm. becomes on set as he feels like, um, you know, it's like a normal thing that happens. You start off with good intentions and as you start to put yourself out there and put money out there and things, you start to feel taken advantage of very, very quickly. And so in an attempt to, you know, preserve your sense of um, dignity, he starts to become a complete asshole. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder how those were sort of taken. Um, but I would I would assume that since it came from, um, this diary from his best friend that right. probably conversations were maybe had about um, what were you know how that was going to look. Yeah, I'm sure that Tommy and Greg must have buried whatever hatchet there may have been years ago, mm-hmm. and now they've come through it stronger, and they're just happy to continue going out and making money off of that exactly. movie that they made together. Yeah, you can't imagine that this book and this movie came out without Tommy knowing what it was going to be about. Yeah, and I I think you know one of the things the movie does that's smart in not really spending all of its runtime on the making of the movie is it doesn't alienate people who haven't seen the room. Right. And the way that the way that it depicts the making of the room is such that there is fan service and people who mm-hmm. love the room will get to see those moments, those iconic moments recreated. Mm-hmm. But it's also done from enough of an outsider perspective that if you haven't seen it, you would still be like watching it and appreciating like the weirdness of it and not right. feeling like, oh, I must be missing this. Like, oh no, you'll get it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I do still feel like 
you will maybe be robbed if you haven't seen it first. I don't think you will get to that point of really appreciating it um, for the first time unless you've seen the room first. So if yeah. you have you have the time, try to get the room, take yeah. a look at that, and then pop over and see the disaster yeah, artist. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's probably good because I think if you don't see it and then you go see the disaster artist in a theater, you're going to have a lot of people around you laughing a lot sooner mm-hmm. than you are. And I think the other thing is that um, I think that you would think that James Franco is being a weirdo yeah. unless you know the person that he's actually doing a very accurate impression yeah. of. It seems like James Franco is would be like overacting with mm-hmm. this weird accent and you would yeah. just think it's Franco being peak Franco. Yeah. Um, but if you know how actually uh, these things aren't crazy and there's actually a real person that, that it's like, it becomes a lot easier to yeah. digest and you start to appreciate how accurate it is. And Franco was able to get an amazing cast of people to show up and That's do... the other fantastic part of this And movie. do just very short, very ridiculous performances. Uh, like as the other actors in the movie, uh, we have Ari Grainer as Lisa, who we see comes the closest to nailing the exact timing mm-hmm. and cadence of the original Lisa. Mm-hmm. Josh Hutcherson. <laughs> I remember Denny. when he hosted SNL a few years ago and he was fucking hilarious and I was shocked. And this is the first oh, time yeah. since then that I'm just like, yeah, dude, you're really funny. You should do more comedy. You should do more comedy. Uh, Nathan Fielder? Nathan Fielder. <laughs> uh, as the crew, we have Seth Rogen. We have Charlene Yee. Uh, we have the complete How Did This Get Made mm-hmm. ca- uh, hosts. We have Paul Shear, Jason Manzukis, and June Diane Raphael, all in the movie. Hannibal Burris. Uh, Sharon Stone, Melanie Griffith. Megan Mullaney. John Early. <laughs> it's like, uh, who else is in this yeah, movie? Yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's constant. Casey Wilson. Casey Wilson. Uh, it is, it is, it is just non-stop and, but it's not distracting. That's the most amazing no, thing of They're all, all playing like a oh, bunch of... Jackie Weaver. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not distracting seeing all these people because I think just the fact that every, oh, Alison Brie, mm-hmm. uh, just the fact that everyone you see is famous, you just like get used to it and it's not like a distraction. And, and the people that they pick to play the people from the room look enough and act exactly like them enough so that works and then everybody else is somebody you wouldn't know like who's the dp on the movie it ends up being paul sherry it's not like he's doing an impression of somebody that you should know so they it ends up being very easy to to digest yeah yeah um an all-around delight laughed like crazy throughout this movie was so left the movie i think we talked about this we looked at each other and we're just like it's nice to leave a movie and not feel like there was like no guilt like mm-hmm. you had such a good time and laughed so hard and there was nothing they were like, oh, that was kind of problematic mm-hmm. um, at all. Yeah, no. It was a real delight. It's terrific. Uh, and it, it's, it's it's basically a co-pick of the week. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's woof. Thumbs up, binge it. Definitely binge it. Um, the Disaster Artist is rated R for language throughout and some sexuality and nudity. And that brings us to our last movie of the week that has a long intro, <laughs> which is Thelma. Thelma, a shy young student, has just left her religious family in a small town on the west coast of Norway to study at university in Oslo. While at the library one day, she experiences a violent, unexpected seizure. Soon after, she finds herself beautifully drawn towards Anya, a beautiful young student who reciprocates Thelma's powerful attraction. As the semester continues, Thelma becomes increasingly overwhelmed by her intense feelings for Anya, feelings she doesn't dare acknowledge, even to herself, while at the same time experiencing more and more extreme seizures. As it becomes clear that the seizures are a symptom of an inexplicable, often dangerous, supernatural abilities, Thelma is confronted with tragic secrets of her past and the terrifying implications of her powers. So here we have um, another movie without, uh, we have a movie without uh, an English language trailer, um, but I read the whole thing for you anyway, so Mm -hmm. uh, what are you giving it? (laughs) 
well, so uh, w- what I am giving it is probably a lower grade than I anticipated based on mm. the coverage of it coming out of Toronto. Mm-hmm. This is one of those movies, and this always pisses me off. Uh, whenever uh, sort of like entertainment websites will do these clickbaity uh, features where they talk about like smaller films or foreign films, um, and they talk about them in really sensational ways that makes everyone go like, oh, that sounds amazing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, like it happened with The Love Witch. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, we're just, you know, it, it's really more about generating clicks than it is giving like an accurate description of what the movie is like. So right. Thelma, when I premiered Toronto, was the number one movie I had people texting me about being like, oh, do you see this? Do you see this? So I think Vulture did some sort of super clickbaity thing about it. Like, oh, a, a psychosexual like lesbian carry. Vulture. Well, I feel like Vulture is the number one entertainment uh, site for me. And oh. for, I, feel like, I feel like that's the one that most people text me about, too. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I... I'm not speaking out of turn Mm-mm. in terms of in terms of like a website that mixes news and commentary. Yeah. I, th- I think mm-hmm. Vulture is pretty much it. AV Club. I'm an AV Club fan. OK. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, probably so... Swamp Thing in a minute. <laughs> oh, you read that like all the Swamp Things do. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So Thelma, um, you know, it, it, it is uh, it is not the knockout that I was led to believe by the coverage that came out of Toronto. I think also in film festivals, everyone is always in a rush to be the one who discovers the thing. Right, yeah. You want to be the one who does the discovery title, and you're like, you know, Mm -hmm. yeah, and and I think Thelma, people were trying to make it their discovery title. We had a couple that were uh, on the chopping block this week, um, because this one came through, and you were like, stop the presses, Mm -hmm. this is the one, we need to look at this one. Yeah. Um, To which I said, do we, sir? Do we? I still think we made the right choice. Yeah? Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I started watching the other one and it was boring. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but uh, but no. Uh, so yeah, Thelma is uh, it is a sort of okay. So here's my main and you guys we just yeah read you basically the entire movie. Um, you know it's it's very uh, it's this very like austere, gorgeously shot Norwegian film directed by uh, I I don't know his name's pronounced like me like Joachim Trier, uh, and uh, it's it's sort of like a genre coming of age horror story slash romance slash mystery it's a it plays in a lot of different genre boxes and uh but ultimately what it felt like to me was raw mm, yeah you said it was raw meets oh i said uh, raw meets novitiate <laughs> uh but uh which is a not novitiate raw the <laughs> director's cut that you gave me <laughs> as an early christmas novitiate present after dark thank you <laughs> No, um, it's so Raw is a movie that we reviewed earlier this year, um, which is like this movie, a story about a college freshman mm-hmm. uh, who comes from a very conservative home, mm-hmm. who has very like solicitous doting parents who check in on her constantly are clearly very worried about her. Uh, she has a sort of like awakening experience. And the only one who doesn't know why is her. Yeah, exactly. And she's the one in the dark about everything. And then she has like an awakening experience at college. And then she starts to uh, have these episodes that are very troubling and very violent and seem to spell uh, bad news for certain people in her sphere. Uh, and ultimately, it all comes down to the sort of like bombshell revelation that her parents need to lay on her to help her understand uh, what's going on here. Mm-hmm. But whereas Ra played that for sort of dark comedy, this is a pretty serious movie. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that there's really not a lot of lightness no. um, to be found here at all. No. Surprising um, for Norway, and yet. <laughs> uh, some disturbing uh, snake imagery in this movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, some heavy-handed snake imagery. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, yeah, this movie definitely um, is another situation where, I mean, what what what, a, what, a, is, where, what does that come from? This idea that, like, your your 
parents are holding you in what they think is a safe space by not telling you um, about yourself. But if you just put a little communication and a heads up, it could really prevent a lot of things. Just a little heads up. Yeah, it seems like the whole thing is a very like Rapunzel, uh, you know, mm. very like, you know, keep your kid in the castle. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's that, you know, overprotective parents. But now uh, it's like hiding the, the world from their kids. 21st century and they have to go to college. Right. And uh, and so you're, you know, reluctantly sending your kids out into the world. Um, and, you know, and, and so it's almost like, okay, is it more about parental anxiety? Is it more about like an 18 year old's anxiety? Mm. Um, so, you know, but in this case, um, you know, it, it's also, uh, you know, very much about just being able to step into your power um, about, uh, you know, particularly about the sort of like feminine power. Uh, there's it's it's also a lesbian love story mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so in that way like as I'm going through this I'm like okay all the different pieces of this feel like they should add up to something that I would just love mm-hmm. uh, because the family is not just conservative they're super super conservative Christian evangelical mm-hmm. and uh, and so they're very kind of fire and brimstone with Thelma in a way that we can clearly ascertain is meant to like scare her um, and keep her reined in and um, and then when she starts to feel um, strong romantic desire for uh, a gorgeous fellow student, uh, then that's it starts to unleash this this piece of her mm-hmm. that manifests in these seizures that um, the doctors can't seem to make heads or tails out of, and which can have truly baffling consequences. Uh, for which whole lot she, of dead birds, oh, so many dead birds. <laughs> uh, so. And this is, I mean, the, the, the direction, the filmmaking is all is all exquisite. There mm-hmm. are some amazing set pieces here, some sort of like De Palma-ish, Hitchcockian set pieces. Um, but I just felt like ultimately it didn't amount to much. This was a hard one for me to stay focused on. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you had said this um, re- most recently about the square that it was like a, a there's going to be a phrase for that, like a phone grabber, like a mm-hmm. um, oh, phone watch. Uh, yeah, phone watch. Is that, mm-hmm. was that what we're going to call it? Maybe just phone movie. Phone movie, mm-hmm. uh, when you can't, it's really hard for you to keep off of your phone while you're watching it. Yes. And this, of course, is speaking for movies that you're watching in your own home. Uh, uh, right. Yeah. Yes. Of course. Don't ever take it out in a theater. Don't do it. Um, so, yeah, I had a hard time keeping uh, keeping interest in this. The character, although these, um, as, she's, as she's coming to grips with her sexuality and her uh, desire, uh, her independence, uh, and these powers emerge... I don't know if it was just like the gaps between those moments were too long or the thread that tie, ties them together was too weak. But I was just like um, the, the moments where she's having these episodes and, you know, the world shakes are really um, amazing and enrapturing. But other than that, I was it would be like, oh, that's a, and then I would go back to my phone. So but you hated Cynthia Nixon seizures and a quiet passion so much. Oh, these I ones, you, these ones you like yeah, you're on board with the Thelma seizures. Quiet. <laughs> a little more quiet. Like a loud seizure, I guess, is the thing. Yeah, I could hear her bones uh, rattling around in her skull. I, didn't I didn't, hear that. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't. Uh, I I am still um, affected by seizure scenes, but. Um, mm. And this movie feels like it can actually inflict a seizure at times. Uh, yeah, there's yeah. A, there's a lot of strobe imagery. Yeah, in they this. do a lot of like stress testing of of her. They try um, to induce know, a seizure. Yeah, so they can figure out what's going on with it. And they and it ends up being like on your TV screen yeah. for like <laughs> for a while, four minutes. I there was at one point where I, I closed my eyes. I was like, yeah. this is getting a little intense. Yeah, no, I did too. And I think not only did I close them, I also put my hand over them because I could still like feel, <laughs> feel against my light. eyelids. I could see the light flipping on and off. I was like, well, that's hard. I wonder to if watch. there's a warning on that. I feel like if we, this would be. I think I saw um, one of the reviews I was looking at. Had 
had that in this person's screening that there was like a warning beforehand like yeah. warning that oh like i can imagine effects. the movie theater like oh, where yeah. it's really dark oh can you imagine oh my god that would be terrible yes so definitely take a word of caution from us now we're not going to say binge it anyway no but if you do still want to see it then like if you are at all sensitive to that then like just skip it yeah i would say skip it entirely don't like try to cover your eyes just skip it because yeah. if you're trapped in a movie theater or that enormous screen doing that for no. like several minutes and you can't get away from it oh yeah it's a lot um, so I guess I just felt like ultimately it was the whole thing was too familiar. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I admire the filmmaking. I really do the performances, nothing wrong with them. Mm-mm. Um, but it just felt really familiar and, uh, and I just liked raw better. Yeah. Raw was a lot more, um, entertaining. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't want to say more clever, maybe the, the austereness of this movie mm-hmm. makes it seem more like, uh, harder to access or like mm. more dull than like the energy that raw had. Right. Right. Uh, despite the fact, I mean, you know, Ra's French. This is Norwegian. Neither country is known for making, like, rollicking good time movies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, there's just something I guess about... Ra just had more passion. Yeah, Ra had more energy. It just, yeah, that was just a live wire movie uh, that was, uh, that was you know, just such a wicked delight to enjoy. Whereas this, yeah, just has that Norwegian austerity that kind of keeps you at arm's length. Mm-hmm. And uh, ultimately to the movie's detriment. Yeah. Uh, I'm giving it, um, I mean, it's not a send it back because I'm not upset no. at it, but it's like a consume minus... I'd say it's like a level consume, almost consume plus for me. Like I, for the first act or so, I was like, oh, I'm going to love this. And then kind of just gradually lost me as it went on. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, so I'd say it's like a solid consume uh, for this title, which is Thelma. Uh, It's unrated, but it would probably be rated R for sensuality and nudity and some disturbing images. And that's it. Uh, Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of The Binge. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes. If you're an Apple iPhone user on Android, there's Stitcher, there's Google Play, there's something called Player FM that I just learned about. Um, You can subscribe there. Uh, If you'd like, you can leave us a review. Um, Jason is on Twitter at... I'm at XS Baggage, guys. We're going to be taking next week off. We'll be back with a new... Uh, I'm going to jump in while I still can. Wow, okay. Because you always just wrap it up. You always just wrap it up. Um, <laughs> we'll be uh, back on December 15th with a new episode. Uh, and also, The Shape of Water, by the way, um, is not going to be opening in San Francisco until uh, next Friday, December 8th. Uh, so if you're in the, in the San Francisco area and you're listening to this right now, you're, you can't watch just yet. It should be opening on the 8th. But the other two movies... Thelma and the Disaster Artist, you can watch as of today. Thank you so much for listening, and bye-bye. Bye, guys. Binging on movies with Rebecca and Jason. You made it to the end, that's amazing. There There goes goes the the binge. binge.